good. If you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 1. After we take a little time in God's Word, we'll have a time to worship and song once more. We'll take uh, some time to fellowship, and if you can stay, uh, adults will be meeting back here, and Dave Johnson will be leading our time of connections, thinking about some of the themes of today's text. So this gospel of Mark, who is Mark? Um, Historically, but not certainly, um, Mark's name is actually never uh, given in this gospel, but historically this gospel is attributed to... Um, what, who some call Mark the Evangelist, uh, the same Mark that we see in the book of Acts. Again, this is not for 100% certain, um, but if it is this Mark, he's actually named what? Yeah, his name is actually John, which would have been his Hebrew name, uh, but it would have been common in that day to also be uh, have kind of a Greco-Roman name, so he was also called Mark. His mother was named Mary from Jerusalem. Um, He was a relative of, a cousin of Barnabas, right? He's Barnabas' cousin. He assists Paul and Barnabas uh, for a portion of their first missionary journey. And then he does what? Yeah, he bails. He leaves. He goes back to Jerusalem. And this actually becomes, for Paul and Barnabas, if you remember in Acts, becomes kind of a dividing point for Paul and Barnabas. Uh, But we still see God work, which is very encouraging to us, right? That God still works through the ministry of Barnabas, through the ministry of Paul. Uh, Barnabas is like, well, I'm taking Mark. Paul's basically like, no way. He abandoned us. Um, But later we see that Uh, Mark kind of re-enters Paul's graces. Uh, In some of his later letters, he asks for Mark. He actually says that he's helpful in his ministry. So really, uh, not that we're going to take a lot of time in this, but, but Mark's personal story is one of kind of growth and maturity and, and of second chances. Um, Mark, the gospel account is the shortest of the four gospels. Um, as for its dating, most Bible scholars consider, and again, all these things are a little bit of conjecture. There's some debate to all this. But most of uh, scholars date it as the earliest of the Gospels, likely written somewhere in the decade prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. Um, as for his audience, uh, well, first of all, too, it, it's also believed that, that Mark was a disciple of the Apostle Peter. And many people consider a lot of the material of the Gospel of Mark actually coming from Peter as his source. Um, Mark has a tendency through this letter to explain Jewish words and to explain Jewish customs. So unlike Matthew, who it's very clear that his audience was Jewish believers primarily, Mark, we see his audience was very likely Gentile believers, which my guess is we have the majority, if not all of us, here. Um, He also, especially in the second half of his gospel, um, really portrays, leans heavily on the suffering of Christ and how the Lord um, had had a a willingness to suffer. And it may suggest that his audience was a church that was going under such circumstances, maybe the persecuted church in Rome who was being persecuted by the Emperor Nero. Um, What was Mark's purpose? It's interesting, when you consider the Gospels, 
none of the Gospels write of every detail of Jesus' life. None of them do. Not by a long shot. In fact, the, the very, very end of the Gospel of John, John says, hey, listen, if I told you all that there was to tell, if I told you every story, every account there was to tell, he imagined that there wouldn't be enough room in the whole world to, to, to contain the books of the stories that would be written. Um, at times, when you consider the Gospels, they're not even overly strict in chronology. Uh, sometimes we see that there is some chronological license taken because of, um, for the sake of theme. And that wouldn't have been understood by an Eastern mindset or an Eastern writer as problematic, as inaccurate, or strange. Um, with that said, Mark's gospel is very forthright. It's very direct. It sometimes almost comes across as blunt. Um, it, you, you, can, you, can, uh, you can also see in it, as we go through it, though it is forthright and blunt, he adds some real interesting personal touches that none of the other gospel writers do. It's action-packed. It's very action-driven. You can almost hear Mark's you know, voice behind, uh, kind of in between the lines sometimes, saying, actions speak louder than words. Uh, there, there's things that even we'll see in today's narrative, there's things that the other gospel writers, especially the synoptic gospels, the Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those gospels that we can lay next to one another that very much work in harmony. Uh, John's gospel is almost 90% independent um, from what we see in, in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, we, can, we can very much... Um, we very much see that, uh, again, Mark relies heavily on the actions uh, portrayed in the gospel accounts. Um, but ultimately, Mark presents to us what we might call the dichotomy of Jesus. Uh, that, that Jesus is the perfect son of God, that he's vigorously about his work... Again, it's very action-packed, very action-driven. He often uses the word immediately or suddenly. He's vigorously about his work. He's a, he's a miracle worker. A, a miraculous power and authority flows through him. And really, the first half of the Gospel of Mark lay, leans very heavily on that theme. Christ, the miraculous worker. And then it's almost like Mark makes this shift where we see this dichotomy of Christ, the suffering servant. Christ, the one who is willing to submit himself to this role of laying his life down for mankind, only to take his life up again. So it's a really interesting thing as you go through Mark. Again, it's almost half and half. This powerful worker of miracles and this one who is willing to humbly lay his life down. Um, with this, I think it's likely that, more than likely, <laughs> that Paul, I mean, excuse me, because I always want to say, I'm, you know, we've been with Paul, we've been with Mark. Is that me? Oh, sorry. Um. Within this, this is this dichotomy that I was talking about. It's very likely that Mark wants to speak to us. 
that Mark wants to speak to we who are his followers to also say that we should expect to live in the tension of that dichotomy. Um, that, that there is this aspect of being a disciple of Jesus that means moving in the power of God, that means moving in the beauty of God, that means moving in even in the miraculous and the authority of God. But also, discipleship is often the difficult choices. Uh, it's, a, it's a choice to, of sacrifice. It's a choice of, um, that's often unpopular. And it's a choice of choosing even daily to lay down your life for living for the will of God, for the love of God, for the love of others. So just as Jesus portrayed both, so his disciples are to expect and live in both. Um, one thing I'd like us to marvel at this morning as we read the, through the first 13 verses is how Mark intertwines the things of earth and the things of heaven. What, what we may, maybe just call the earthy and the cosmic. Um, when, the, when the world was first created, we don't get this sense of a really drastic distinction between the two. The Lord creates Eden. God is walking with Adam in the cool of the day. It's after sin that it almost feels like this thick curtain comes down between the physical realm and the spiritual realm. Yet as Mark begins, it's as if he's cueing us in to a new created order. Um, and with each straightforward introductory picture, it's as if that curtain begins to lift a bit more and more. So Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I, I need to pause there. We'll just stop right there. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark immediately lays the foundation for everything that's going to follow. God has started something new, Right? It's like we, we hearken back to Genesis 1.1, the beginning. God has started something new in this gospel, which is a proclamation, a momentous good news or good message that, that changes the course of history. The centerpiece of this gospel is the historical man, Jesus. And his name meant God saves or Yahweh is salvation. And this historical man is the Christ, which is the Greek word that is, its correlation is with the Hebrew word Messiah, who is the prophesied anointed one as, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if that's, the prophesied anointed one as uh, kings would be anointed and priests would be anointed, set apart for the work of God. But this same man, this historical Jesus, this Christ, this Messiah, is in fact God's son, deity breaking into humanity. Now I need to point out a, a, an important side note here that the son of God has to be equal 
to God in his nature. Um, some, some, we could say, uh, cults even, don't get this right. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that because it's really important. They will say that Jesus, even being the son of God, means he's somehow inferior to God. That doesn't even make logical sense. Um, anything that is a child of anything else is equal to the parent in essence. And I've shared this before. So if a cat has kittens, those kittens are still 100% cat, right? They can't be anything else. If, if, a, if, a, if a cow calves, right, that calf is not somehow inferior in its cowness, right? It's, it's 100% cow. So just so the same goes with humans, right? So a human child is equal to his or her parents in their humanity. So Jesus, as he will often refer to himself in this gospel, he interestingly, he most often refers to himself as the son of man. He most often refers to himself as the son of man. Because he is born of the Virgin Mary and is therefore fully human. But he is also the Son of God. Because he was miraculously conceived by the Holy Spirit. And if he is the Son of God, he has to be, in essence, God. That has to be who he is. Um, Jesus didn't become God the Son when he was born on earth. Instead, it has been his place for all eternity. The, the Apostle John tells us this in his prologue of his gospel, right? That Jesus was God and he was with God in the beginning. So when creation happened, he was already there. He pre-exists. He is eternity in both direction. And now the stuff of earth has met the stuff of heaven and comes together in one God-man. And all that follows in Mark is built on this foundation, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then as we continue in Mark, I think the thing that we're supposed to continually ask ourselves is, if this is true, if this is really so, how must I respond? And that's a question that we need to constantly be asking ourselves. Maybe, maybe some of you have never responded to Jesus in faith. And that's where you need to start. But even if you have, as you walk with God and you walk through his word, we need to continually say, how do I need to respond to the truth I find in his word? I've titled this lesson, First Things First, as we hear from Mark what needed to precede the ministry of Jesus. Verses 2 through 8. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, this is John, who we'd call John the Baptist, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the peoples of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 
John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, whose thongs, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the first thing we should see here as Mark lays some of this groundwork is that he refers to some prophecy. And this is actually a combination of prophecy. He attributes it primarily to Isaiah, who would have been the better known of the prophets that we see these prophecies come from. But we have to see that even though God is starting a new thing, beginning, right, new beginnings, this story is firmly anchored in what God has already done in the past. So, so we see Mark kind of casting, casting us both ways. God is beginning something new, but it's something that's firmly anchored in what we know of God already in the history of what he's done and recorded in the scriptures. So the story of Jesus is not a separate story from the Old Testament scriptures, but rather a continuation and a fulfillment of what God has already said and done. Uh, Mark gives us a brief description of John's ministry. It's located in the desert or at the edge of the wilderness, and it is happening along the Jordan. And those words and visuals, um, and again, you guys that were just in Israel, right? Those words and visuals would have brought to mind, surely for them, the 40 years of wandering for Israel in the desert. And then the Jordan was that river that they needed to cross, that Moses didn't get to cross, but they needed to cross to enter into God's what? Yeah, land of promise. And who happened to lead them into the promised land? Who was their leader? Yeah, Joshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus. It's the same name. It's the same name, Yeshua. Um, so Jesus, this new Joshua, is about to lead his people out of the wilderness of sin and death into the promised land of life with God. Um, John's message didn't concern himself. It wasn't about self-glorification in any way. It was about preparation, pointing to one greater to soon follow, one of whom he says he's not even worthy to do the menial work of untying his sandals, which would have been a servant's work or slave's work. He says, I'm not even worthy to do that. This one who will follow will be so great. His ministry lays the groundwork and is, is symbolic of this greater one to come. Uh, this greater one to come is not simply going to immerse people in water, the physical. He is going to immerse people in what? Yeah, God's spirit. God's spirit, which we see the fulfillment of that in Pentecost and really now all throughout the age of the church. Now, John's appearance is interesting. Uh, there was someone else that was written to appear just like this. Who was that? Who was that, Myron? 
you did a whole series on this guy, I think. Elijah, yeah. So Elijah is described exactly the same way, wearing uh, animal's hair, uh, a leather belt. So what's interesting is this very much contrasted the religious leaders of the day, right? The religious leaders of the day wore these rich and flowing, elaborate robes. And here comes Elijah, like an Old Testament prophet of the past, wearing camel's hair and and a leather belt and eating bugs and honey. Um, his ministry is effective. Um, it's, it's this really, again, this interesting dichotomy of, of heaven and earth. He, John himself feels very earthy, almost, very, almost wild, you know, out there in the wilderness, camel's hair, eating locusts and honey. But he's introducing the great move of God that's about to come. It's effective. Many people come. He's a preacher. He's a, he's a herald, as if that word preacher is kind of this idea of a herald, as someone who would be introducing a coming king. And his preaching called for and incited a response of confession and the repentance of sins. And you don't get the sense that people are coming and, like, whispering in John's ear. This is what I've done. Like, they were coming and publicly professing, confessing their sins and turning from their sins. And then this was physically displayed through baptism. So why did John's testimony in ministry have to come first? John's preparation is that of a road construction crew, right? He's bringing the valleys high. He's bringing the mountains low. He's calling people to be pointed in the right direction, this idea of repentance, turning from sin, turning around, so that their hearts and minds are ready to receive Jesus, when he comes on the scene. I thought, how interesting. Isn't this still true of God? Like, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, think about when you came to trust in him. What happened first? I mean, when you look back at that time, maybe you were very young, maybe it was midlife, maybe it was older. Was there a work that God was doing to prepare you to get there? Maybe it, was a, maybe it was a conviction of sin. Maybe it was this desperate awareness within that of a need for a Savior. And then you're introduced to that Savior, and you find out that he has loved you unto death. Or perhaps for a couple of you, that's the work that's going on right now. That God has surrounded you with people of faith that God has prepared in your heart your need for him. And I just encourage you, how how are you responding to that? Or maybe God is using you as a minister of preparation in the life of someone else. That that as someone is working through and seeking and and having some hard questions on issues of faith, maybe God has brought you into their life. I don't know who that is. Maybe someone for you comes to mind. Will you be patient with that process and walk with them and dialogue with them and and not shove things down their throat, but say, Spirit, what, what would you have me say? What would you have me not say? May I be a minister of preparation for what you're doing in someone's life? It's the ministry of John. Verses 9 through 11. 
At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. And now enter Jesus. This is, again, we, get, we have to get used to this mode of operation for, Matt, for Mark. Uh, you know, here comes John, here comes Jesus. It's, it's to the point. It's, it's driven home quickly. And Jesus is said to be from Nazareth. Again, that earthy, remote, podunk village of Nazareth where, where many ew, Gentiles travel through. A place that Nathan famously asked, can anything good come from there? When he was told that this Jesus was from Nazareth? Nazareth, what good can come from that place? And it seems again that it's painted in stark contrast. Here's this Jesus from Nazareth, from podunk, Gentile, trodden Nazareth. But he is also of heavenly origin. Earth being broken upon by heaven. As God says, this is my son, of whom I love and I am well pleased. Can I say, how could someone of heaven possibly come from such an ordinary down-to-earth place? But that is Jesus. He's the God-man who identifies with us in the dirt. In the dirt of everyday life, of ordinary life, of ordinary people. Now, why did Jesus' baptism have to happen first? Matthew tells us, the Gospel of Matthew tells us that even John was shocked. John was like, "Uh, this has to happen the other way around. I don't baptize you, Jesus. You baptize me. And was John right to be shocked? Absolutely. I mean, as far as I can perceive, he absolutely was right to be shocked. There's a tremendous irony Now, John was a godly man. Jesus says, in fact, there was no other, no greater man born to to woman. He's a godly man, but he still was a what? He's a sinner, right? He wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't Messiah. He was still a sinner. So there's a great irony to have a sinner baptizing a sinless man in a baptism that represented the repentance for sin. Of course, I'm encouraged by such examples. I'm encouraged that that John's like, whoa, no way, not me. And Jesus is like, no, it has to happen this way, John. That God's so willing to use we who are unworthy to do his work when we obey. That's an encouragement to me. But in Jesus' baptism, we get a picture of his heart and mission People came to John sensing their need for God's forgiveness. They're sinners. Like we said, that preparatory work, and maybe that's going on in you. I I, I am broken. I can't do this on my own. As much as I try, Daniel already shared that. As much as I try, I still get it wrong. We sang about it this morning. I need a Savior. 
And, and people are coming to John with that attitude. Now here comes the perfect son of God. This is my son, God the Father says, whom I love, whom I'm well pleased. Here comes the perfect son of God. And he willingly identifies himself with sinful man, even though he had no sin to repent of. He joins us. He aligns with us. He identifies with us with our sin, with our need for forgiveness. And he foreshadows what he'll do on the cross of Calvary as he takes our sin upon himself. Hebrews 2 is right when it tells us that Jesus shared in our humanity and was made like his brothers in every way. And then we get this beautiful picture of the Trinity at work in the beginning of what I'd say is this new creation God is starting something new. We hear God's, the Father's voice, acknowledging God the Son. We see the Spirit descend. I wonder if John gets a sense of this. Was he surprised that it wasn't a fire, but it was a dove? He descends as this peaceful dove. It's the same voice that spoke. The same word as the Apostle John would say, Logos, there in the beginning, the creative agent that enacted, the same Spirit of God that hovered over the waters at creation in Genesis 1, but we were the ones that walked away from that Genesis 1 life. We are the ones that wrecked that. And now here, that voice and that word and that Spirit are on the scene again, and are beginning a new creation through Jesus, a new opportunity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 18 says, if anyone is in Christ, and that happens through your faith in him, trusting that he has accomplished salvation for you as he paid for your sins on the cross and rose from the dead, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. And if you believe in Jesus, you too are called to be baptized. It's not salvation in and of itself. But but it's interesting, again, remember that I I keep talking about that we should be marvel, we should marvel at this idea of the physical and the spiritual and God's spiritual breaking in on humanity. And here we're called to be baptized that our physical bodies would join in with what has happened in our spirit. Our baptism isn't the baptism of repentance and preparation that we see with John. But it's a baptism of unity with Christ, of unity with Jesus. And it's really great as he identifies himself with us in everything that it is to be human, even as he says, I'm going to take this baptism of repentance, I'm going to align myself with you, identify myself with you, so sinful man. Now when we get baptized, we identify ourselves with him. He is identified with us in his baptism. Now, when we get baptized, we identify with him. Dead with Christ, we go down, unified in his death. We come up, unified in his resurrection.
If you haven't gotten baptized, you want me to talk about it, I'll be glad to talk to you about it. And I, it would be my privilege to dunk you someday. So it's a beautiful picture. Final verses, 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. You're like, Mark, what's the deal? No words, no, no exchange between Satan and Jesus, none of that. He doesn't even tell us that Jesus fasted that 40 days. He just, he tells us at once, again, there's a sense of urgency that's commonplace to Mark's gospel. He's driven into the wilderness. It's brief, it's blunt, it's void of a lot of the details we have in the other gospels. It's initiated by the Holy Spirit. He spends 40 days in the wilderness, that time of testing, right? 40 years in the wilderness with uh, Israel's wandering. It's a place where he would have been tired, lonely. To say that he would have been hungry is to put it lightly, exposed. And in this, he is tempted by Satan. That's why Hebrews 2.18 can say, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen, temptation in itself is not sin. Even Jesus experienced temptation. It's when we give into it, we take that step towards it in our mind, in our heart, in our body, that it becomes sin. And the Bible says because Jesus was tempted, he suffered under temptation, he is able not just to empathize, but to help those who are being tempted. I, I need, that's hard to believe sometimes, right? Do you believe that? That you can rely on the Lord who understands and is there to help. Why does this testing have to come first? Jesus again identifies himself with humanity. It's as if he's saying he'll take no shortcuts in what it is to be human. The difference is, is where we have all failed, right? He proves to be the perfect man. He will not misuse his choice. He will not misuse his freedom. He will not misuse his power. He will not misuse his authority. He will not misuse his worship. But instead, he will have a steady reliance on the sufficiency of the word of God. It's what Adam and Eve failed to do. Hey, Adam and Eve, just trust me. Trust me. Eat any, any, anything here, just this one tree. It's what Adam and Eve failed to do. It's what Israel failed to do. And it's what we failed to do. But Jesus comes out triumphant. Right? Jesus comes out the perfect man. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. And that's why he is the only man on earth, the only man on earth ever that walked the earth perfectly and therefore can say to God, I am a willing sacrifice for you and you and you and you. Because he had no sin to pay for on, of, his, of his own. 
I will be a sacrifice. I will be a substitute. That's why Peter can say, there's no other name under heaven or on earth by which men can be what? Saved. None. There's not. Not Buddha, not Muhammad, nothing. Because he is the only perfect man that was under temptation as we are, but yet was without sin. And Mark interestingly adds, as we wrap up here, not not only is Jesus after this attended by angels, so you get this again, the the spiritual realm busting into the, the earthy here, but it said, he says that he was with the wild animals. It's an interesting comment. He was with the wild animals. Matthew doesn't say that. Luke doesn't say that. John doesn't say that. And, and it very well may be that, at least in part, he's speaking of Jesus' loneliness during that time. He had no um, human companionship. It may be that he's speaking of the dangers that Jesus faced while he was out there. But I just wonder also, I can't help but wonder, if if Mark is in a sense glimpsing back to the harmony of Eden, right? Where Adam and Eve had no fear, perfect harmony with creation. And then he's glimpsing forward to what this Jesus is going to do to bring perfect harmony once again. We get this great picture, if you bear with me, this beautiful picture in Isaiah chapter 11. It says, the wolf will will live with the lamb. The leopard will will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his place of rest will be glorious. (laughs) He's with the wild animals. The angels are attending him. Reminded again that there's, there's a lot more going on between the physical and the spiritual that, than often meets the eye. And you get the sense of heaven and earth colliding in Jesus. And the reality is, is that heaven wants to break into your reality. Heaven wants to shake up your reality. We think of everything as real as this and this, and I can touch it and I can, you know. And heaven says, no, I want to break into your reality. I wonder, can we commit even this week to be, be, being before the Lord and saying, Lord, show me. Where are you breaking into earth? Where, where is the spiritual world breaking upon the physical world? Where are you breaking in to what I call reality? And you might be really surprised once you start asking the Lord to open your eyes to this, how much God is actually working right around you. And how much he's doing and how much he wants to include you and really how thin the veil is 
between the spiritual and the physical. Maybe the spiritual, as C.S. Lewis would suggest, is much more tangible than the physical even is. And so we begin the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus, heaven has broken upon earth, and the divine has broken into our humanity. And through Jesus, you have begun a new creation. And I just ask that we may not be so chained to what we perceive as real, all this physical around us, Lord God, that we miss you, the God who is spirit moving among us. I pray, Lord, that you continue to fold back the curtain for us, that we may engage your reality in heaven and on earth, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in your service to your glory by faith. And we thank you, Lord, and we praise you, God, that Jesus was willing to identify with us so that in faith we can be identified with him. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Amen.